On January 21, 2015, dozens of residents from Flint, Michigan stormed into a city hall meeting. Many of the townspeople were holding something odd, bottles of murky water. One by one, they complained about the tap water that had flowed into their homes for the past nine months. They said it had a foul odor, weird taste, and color so brown that it could be mistaken for coffee. Local and state officials reassured residents that their water was safe to drink. They suggested that vulnerable groups, like children, pregnant women, and the elderly, should consider using a filter, as if this were a typical dirty tap water issue. But it wasn't. Studies later showed that Flint citizens had been subject to water that qualified as hazardous waste and many of their government officials knew about it for far longer than anyone thought. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And this is They Knew, a four-part special series presented by Conspiracy Theories, When a tragedy occurs, we often find ourselves asking, how could this happen? Oftentimes, the events were totally random. There's no way anyone could have foreseen what would happen. But other disasters are the result of negligence and corruption. In this episode, we'll take a deep dive into one of America's most infamous public works tragedies, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. In 2014, the city switched its water supply to a new contaminated source. Within months, many people within the government knew the water was tainted, but let citizens keep consuming it. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Since the mid-2010s, Flint has become synonymous with toxic water, poor governance, and poverty. But in the 1900s, it was a booming town known as the birthplace of General Motors, the largest American auto manufacturer. By the mid-20th century, almost half the town's residents worked for the company. Thanks to that gainful employment, Flint's residents had the highest median income in the entire state of Michigan. As the city prospered, its population swelled from 13,000 people in 1900 to a population of 200,000 in the 1960s. But after that, the city's growth sputtered. Over the decades, GM began moving out of Flint to build new plants in adjacent suburbs. As a result, the city incurred less tax revenue and skyrocketing unemployment. Meanwhile, the construction of a new highway through town displaced residents and businesses. 
This only exacerbated the, quote, white flight of affluent white families to the suburbs throughout the 50s and 60s. The combination of GM's divestment and the white flight transformed Flint's demographics. The city became an impoverished, predominantly black town with rampant crime. And because of racist housing and lending policies, the remaining residents had nowhere else to go. Through a practice known as redlining, government appraisers deemed black neighborhoods like Flint hazardous. The designation suppressed the area's home values and prompted banks to deny loans to residents. On top of that, the city's shrinking population caused Flint to lose a massive amount of tax revenue. By 2002, the city was in dire straits, facing a $30 million deficit. The town's cash woes were so egregious that Michigan's governor declared a financial emergency. Under Michigan law, the declaration put Flint under the state's executive control for the next two years. Instead of being governed by the local mayor and city council, Flint was to be run by a governor-appointed emergency manager, or EM, named Ed Kurtz. His mission was to save the city's finances, and he took it seriously. In his two years as an EM, Kurtz issued almost 120 cost-cutting directives, which helped lessen Flint's deficit. By June 2004, the state ended its takeover, and the mayor and city council regained control of the town. But unfortunately, Flint couldn't remain profitable. Companies in the region continued outsourcing jobs or shutting down for good, and Flint's population dwindled even further. As residents bolted from the city, schools shuttered, homes went vacant, and infrastructure worsened. Because of Flint's waning population, pipes went dormant and decayed over time. In turn, residents owed costly water bills to keep the system functioning. During the Great Recession in 2008, things only grew worse. At one point in 2009, nearly 30% of Flint's workers were unemployed. After the recession, the city was burdened with a $25 million deficit. Again, Flint fell into a state of financial emergency. In the years since the previous emergency, Michigan's new governor, Rick Snyder, had signed a bill that broadened the authority of emergency managers. Michigan voters rejected the law in a statewide referendum, but Snyder found a way to work around the people's vote. Instead, he signed a second similar bill into law known as Public Act 436, and it included a key provision. The public couldn't repeal it. The law essentially stripped Flint citizens and their elected representatives of a voice in government. They were trapped under the leadership of whoever Snyder appointed as their emergency manager. Initially, Snyder installed an EM named Michael Brown. He seemed like a reasonable candidate to save Flint from financial ruin. He had previously been the city's temporary mayor. But the unenviable job was tough and soon Brown stepped down. The position was a revolving door, featuring four different EMs in as many years. Before long, Flint turned to a familiar face, Ed Kurtz. Having already helped the city through one financial emergency, 
Kurtz focused on the same strategy again, cutting costs, particularly by changing Flint's water source. At the time, Flint paid Detroit to use water from its water and sewerage department. Kurtz suggested a cheaper alternative, building a pipeline to the Carignandi Water Authority, or KWA. The company sourced water directly from Lake Huron, one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world. According to NPR, the city council projected that the water supply change would save the city $200 million over 25 years. Later in 2013, the plan was approved, but there was one minor snag. Building the pipeline would take at least a year and a half. Until the project was finished, Kurtz's proposal called for the city to get its water from the Flint River. So in April 2014, the temporary switch to Flint River water went into effect, and nothing would ever be the same. Coming up, Michigan officials realize switching Flint's water source was a fatal error. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In April 2014, Flint, Michigan switched to a cheaper water source as a means to stave off bankruptcy. At the time, residents had no idea just how negligent their representatives were being. Government officials failed to account for Flint's infrastructure. Many older cities, like Flint, have lead water pipes. If lead chips off the pipe linings and trickles into tap water, it can be toxic. The federal lead and copper rule requires public water systems to monitor and regulate the amount of lead in its supply. But Flint didn't comply. Around April 24, 2014, just a day before the city was scheduled to change its water source, the Environmental Protection Agency received a key piece of information. Michigan's Department of Environment Quality, or DEQ, said the Flint Water Treatment Plant did not have corrosion control. In plain English, the plant was sending water through the lead pipes without treating it, in violation of the lead and copper rule. Unfortunately, the EPA, which was responsible for enforcing the law, didn't intervene. So Flint carried on with its plan. The next day, Flint Mayor Dane Walling pushed a button and changed the city's water source to the Flint River. 
Alongside his colleagues, the mayor raised a glass of Flint River water in celebration. Although they toasted to the town, their cause for celebrating was really about saving money. Before the city's residents had a chance to take a sip, local authorities preemptively tried to dispel any concerns about the water's quality. In a press release, Mayor Walling praised the, quote, regular, good, pure drinking water right in our backyard. The same press release included an endorsement from Michael Prisby, a DEQ engineer who claimed that the water was safe to drink. But Flint residents weren't as enthusiastic. Just weeks after the switch, townspeople complained that their tap water had a pungent odor, weird taste, and a deep brown color that looked like coffee. By May, a Flint resident reached out to Jennifer Crooks, an official at the EPA's regional office. The resident told Crooks he had rashes and his doctor blamed it on the new water. And he wasn't the only one. After hearing from several other people with similar symptoms, Crooks sent an email to a colleague at the EPA's Office of Groundwater and Drinking Water. The organization sought guidance from the CDC, but officials there offered an inconclusive explanation. They said that the rashes could be caused by the water's pH level, but tests of Flint water hadn't shown any cause for concern, so neither agency seemed to be compelled to investigate further. And this would later prove to be calamitous. Later that summer, residents' fears were validated when the DEQ made a chilling announcement. DEQ engineer Michael Prisby, who previously claimed the water was safe, revealed that the water on the west side of the city actually had bacteria. He said that recent tests showed the presence of total coliforms, fecal coliforms, and E. coli in the water. These contaminants can pose significant health risks. If ingested, the water could cause gastrointestinal illness and infections in the skin, ear, respiratory systems, and eye, among other symptoms. Children, the elderly, and immunocompromised individuals were particularly vulnerable. Out of caution, the city issued an advisory that summer. Westside residents needed to boil their water for at least one minute before consuming. Even then, Michigan's DEQ thought the water quality was an easy fix. The agency claimed it could resolve the issue by simply increasing chlorine levels to purify the water. But the DEQ's solution didn't assuage Flint residents, whose water remained discolored and smelly. Even after the agency's assurances, many locals avoided using their tap altogether and purchased bottled water instead. And soon, the water quality impacted Flint's businesses, including its largest employer, General Motors. The city's water was so corrosive that even GM didn't want to use it because it rusted their engine parts. As a short-term solution, the company tried to purify the water coming into the plants. But by October, GM struck a deal to source water from Flint Township, which is adjacent to the city of Flint, but administered autonomously with its own separate water system. With this new deal in place, General Motors no longer had to worry about Flint's lead pipes and corrosive water. Unfortunately, 
the city's residents couldn't afford to make the same deal for their own homes. GM's decision to change its water supply should have been a red flag that compelled the state to act. But apparently, GM had higher standards for its parts than the state had for its people. In response, the DEQ reiterated that Flint's water was safe to drink and people shouldn't worry. So the residents of Flint continued consuming the tainted river water. And with each passing day, the water further chipped away at the lead lining of their city's outdated pipes. That lead continued to flow into the water that people used to brush their teeth, cook, and shower. According to the EPA, there is no safe level of lead in water. Lead poisoning can be fatal, and even at low exposure levels, it can cause developmental delays, abdominal pain, neurologic changes, and irritability. But even before the lead levels came to light, Flint's water was revealed to be contaminated. On January 2, 2015, Flint Utilities Administrator Mike Glasgow signed a statement admitting that the city had violated the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act. The local water had an excessive amount of a toxic contaminant called total trihalomethanes, or TTHM. The substance forms after chlorine reacts with organic materials in water, including leaves or dirt. According to the EPA, tap water with high amounts of TTHM can increase the risk of developing bladder cancer. In Flint, the city's quarterly testing found almost 25% more TTHM than the maximum levels set by public health guidelines. Despite the alarming news, Glasgow tried to downplay any concerns. In his announcement, he told Flint residents that they didn't need to worry about consuming the tap water unless they were among one of the vulnerable groups, severely immunocompromised people, infants, or senior citizens. In that case, he advised consulting a doctor. The most distressing part of Glasgow's memo was at the end. He said that the city anticipated resolving the contamination issue sometime within the year. Clearly, the prospect of Flint's residents having possibly carcinogenic water for nearly 12 months didn't trouble officials. A few days after Glasgow's remarks, Flint Mayor Dane Walling defended the city's water quality. He told reporters that the water was so safe that he and his family drank it every day. After hearing this, residents were understandably outraged. On the one hand, officials were telling them that the water was safe. But on the other, they were being warned that the water could cause cancer. They had already been subject to toxic water for over eight months. Each additional day could pose a fatal risk. And if the government wouldn't advocate for them, Flint residents would have to speak out on their own behalf. Coming up, Michigan officials are finally pressured to act. Now, back to the story. On January 21st, 2015, dozens of angry Flint residents spoke out at a city hall meeting regarding the water supply. 
20-year-old Corridon Maynard complained that drinking his tap water had recently made him violently ill. After consuming a couple glasses before bed, he woke up later in the night to vomit it out. It also came up through his nose, burning. Other residents echoed Maynard's complaints. They said their children were developing rashes and mysterious illnesses. Even their pets became sick from consuming the toxic water. Throughout the meeting, photographers captured images of residents holding up bottles filled with their dirty brown tap water. One of the most harrowing photos showed 36-year-old Leanne Walters holding two bottles of cloudy, discolored water up to the face of the city's new emergency manager, Jerry Ambrose. Yet the government officials at the meeting barely acknowledged that there was any problem at all. The DEQ engineer, Michael Prisby, said that the toxic chemical in the city's water was only concerning if vulnerable groups consumed it for decades. Prisby's response didn't do much to ease the concerns of the community. The exasperated crowd grew unruly, causing officials to end the forum early. As discontent among residents swelled, a lifeline suddenly emerged. During the same month as the town hall meeting, Detroit's water system offered to reconnect Flint to its pipelines and waive its usual $4 million connection fee. But Ambrose declined the offer. He claimed that, quote, water from Detroit is no safer than Flint. In reality, the EM's decision was about finances, not safety. Even though Detroit would waive the connection fee, the city still charged $1 million a month for the water. Having been tasked with saving Flint from bankruptcy, the EM refused to entertain a solution that would only add to the city's debt. Flint's city council tried to overrule his choice, voting to switch the city back to Detroit water. But the gesture was meaningless. Ambrose was the only one with the authority to change the water source. As a result, the improperly treated river water continued flowing through Flint's lead pipes. That meant that lead kept peeling off the pipes and into residents' homes. And if the townspeople consumed the water without a filter, they were essentially drinking and bathing in poison. At this point, the state may not have been fully aware of how much lead was seeping into Flint's taps. But they were already taking precautions to protect government employees. After workers at Michigan's Technology Management and Budget Department raised concerns about the water at their office in Flint, the state provided coolers of purified water for them to drink. While the DEQ was making special accommodations for the state's employees, the agency continued to publicly dismiss the concerns of Flint's residents. But it wasn't long before the government's internal concerns came to light. In June 2015, an internal memo from the EPA highlighted the elevated levels of lead in Flint's water. EPA staffer Miguel A. Del Toro had serious doubts about Flint's lead testing protocols, or lack thereof. Michigan's DEQ had done its own preliminary testing of the water in nearly 200 Flint homes and didn't find anything troubling. But the EPA staffer worried that the government's study might be intentionally excluding homes with elevated lead levels. 
days after the memo was written, it was leaked to the public by the ACLU. Like before, the DEQ immediately dismissed any concerns. Its spokesperson told people to, quote, relax. But after months of being subject to water that looked, tasted, and smelled foul, Flint's residents saw little reason to trust the DEQ. Their suspicions were soon validated when two bombshell reports dropped in September of 2015. In the first, Virginia Tech researchers found lead levels well above public health regulations in the tap water of Flint residents. For context, federal laws dictate that lead in drinking water should not exceed 15 parts per billion, or PPB. In Flint, the water in the home of resident Leanne Walters came in at a staggering 13,200 PPB. That's two and a half times greater than what the EPA categorized as hazardous waste. After consuming the contaminated water, Walter's son was diagnosed with lead poisoning. Other households didn't fare much better. Out of the more than 250 homes whose water was tested, 40% had elevated lead levels. Based on the researchers' samples, Flint's tap water was 19 times more corrosive than their previous water supply. The research team concluded their report with a recommendation. Michigan needed to declare Flint's water unsafe for drinking or cooking. It's unclear if Michigan officials considered this bold suggestion. About the same month, another study proved that the danger of the contaminated water wasn't just hypothetical, it was already happening. Pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha of Flint's Hurley Medical Center worried about the water's effect on the city's children. She and her colleagues analyzed data from the patient's blood tests, and what they discovered was deeply troubling. Hanna Atisha found that the percentage of children in Flint with lead poisoning had nearly doubled since the water supply switch. And in some neighborhoods, the rates tripled. Hannah Atisha and her team became the first to establish a direct link between Flint River water and high lead levels in Flint's children. They found that the infection rate correlated with where the lead levels were the highest. According to the CDC, lead exposure in children can cause side effects like brain damage, stunted growth, and poor speech. As a result, kids infected with lead poisoning typically have a lower IQ, struggle to pay attention, and perform poorly in school. Sadly, that aligned with what Flint teacher Bethany Dumanois observed in her first grade classroom. She saw that the six-year-olds were having trouble remembering five words that they had gone over every day for two weeks. She also told the New York Times that her students were acting out by flipping desks and hurling chairs. By the fall of 2015, the crisis had ignited outrage far beyond city limits. With hard data from doctors and scientists, it was impossible for Michigan officials to continue denying the problem. The mounting pressure finally led to a change. In October 2015, Flint Mayor Dane Walling announced that the city would stop sourcing water from the Flint River and reconnect to Detroit water. But simply switching back to the old water source wasn't going to end the crisis. Until Flint's lead pipes were completely replaced, 
residents would essentially be drinking their tap water out of a lead straw. The town received well over $100 million in federal and state funding to make the fix, but upgrading the water system was still an arduous task. As of this recording, the process is still underway, more than seven years since the crisis began. Even swapping the pipes won't change the damage that's already been done. The disaster has been linked to at least 12 deaths and at least 80 cases of Legionnaire's disease, a severe form of pneumonia. The disaster has had a marked effect on the city's children. The town's recently established Neurodevelopmental Center of Excellence screened over 200 students and found that 70% required special accommodations for issues like ADHD, dyslexia, or mild intellectual impairment. The increase in students needing accommodations has overwhelmed local schools that were already understaffed and underfunded. Despite all the damage done to the community, attempts at accountability are still ongoing. Numerous lawsuits and investigations have charged authorities with negligence and willful neglect. Michigan's attorney general at the time, Bill Schutte, brought forth several criminal cases, but the investigation was hardly an independent one. Schutte belonged to the same political party as fellow Republican Governor Rick Snyder, the man at the center of the Flint scandal. In total, Schutte charged 15 officials in connection to the water crisis, but seven of those cases were resolved with plea agreements, and none of them resulted in fines or jail time. The remaining cases were dismissed in 2019 by the new Attorney General, Democrat Dana Nessel. Under the new administration, Nessel led a new investigation that charged nine people. As of this recording, the cases are still ongoing. Among those charged is emergency manager Jerry Ambrose, who had initially refused to switch Flint back to Detroit's water supply. He faces four felony counts of misconduct in office. The highest officer holder charged was former Governor Snyder. He faces two misdemeanor accounts of willful neglect, a maximum penalty of two years in prison, or a potential $2,000 fine. The governor had insisted on the need for transparency when he was in office. Yet, the actions of his administration tell a different story. A 2020 investigation by Vice found that Snyder had been cautioned about the dangers of switching to Flint River water a year before the change was made. He did not respond to Vice's requests for comment. Then, in July of 2021, an expose by The Intercept and Detroit Metro Times reported that Snyder didn't comply with multiple subpoena requests. When investigators tried to review the state's internal communications, they found that the cell phones of Michigan's top environmental and health officials were wiped of virtually any text messages about Flint's drinking water. As of December 2021, more than seven years after the Flint water crisis began, no one charged in the catastrophe has served any jail time. Even if Snyder and the other officials are ultimately convicted, the people of Flint are angry about the lax charges. Flint resident and water activist Melissa Mays is upset that former Governor Snyder is not being prosecuted for any felonies. She believes his misdemeanor charges, quote, 
proved to us in Flint that if you are a rich white man, it's not considered an actual crime to poison poor black and brown communities for profit. It's only a minor fine and a slap on the wrist. May's grievance speaks to the issue of environmental racism, a term that refers to the disproportionate exposure of people of color to polluted air, water, and soil. In the case of Flint's tragedy, University of Michigan researcher Paul Mohai called the water crisis, quote, the most egregious example of environmental injustice and racism in my over three decades of studying this issue. The government's delayed action is all too familiar to impoverished communities like Flint. It's well documented that poorer citizens are less likely to vote, so politicians are incentivized to focus on affluent constituents instead. Which makes it even more challenging for struggling towns to make themselves heard and receive support. Unfortunately, that's still true for Flint. As of this recording, many residents still don't feel safe drinking from their home's tap water. Even though the state has confirmed that Flint's water is now well within federal guidelines for lead, Locals no longer trust their government. Michigan also underwent an aggressive effort to update Flint's water system. Since 2017, contractors have checked over 27,000 pipes and replaced another 10,000. However, many residents who have had their pipes replaced still use bottled water. Some found the pipe replacement program to be confusing and don't trust the government after being misled for years. At the moment, the only semblance of justice for Flint residents was a recent payout from the state. On November 10, 2021, a federal judge approved a $626 million settlement for tens of thousands of Flint residents who had sued the state of Michigan. The sum was significant for one reason. It was more than the $200 million savings that emergency manager Ed Kurtz sought when he forced the city to use the Flint River's water. While the settlement may sound like a big win for victims, it's worth noting that there are at least 50,000 parties to the settlement, which means each victim only receives about $12,500. The meager reward was even less satisfying, considering it was mostly funded by taxpayer contributions. Sadly, much of the payout is essentially coming out of the victims' own wallets. The Flint water crisis is a glaring example of bureaucracy gone wrong. But government negligence isn't just an American issue. It's worldwide and plagues some of the most powerful, technologically savvy countries, like Japan. Just before the Flint water crisis began, Japan battled an epic environmental tragedy of its own, the Fukushima nuclear disaster of 2011. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time with the third episode in our four-part special. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Hanani, with writing assistance by Mallory Cara and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 